0: This morning we continue our study of Luke's gospel. We're going to explore some lessons in Luke. And this morning our text comes to us from Luke chapter 6, the first 11 verses. Now it happened that one Sabbath Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields. And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them together in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why do you do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered them and said, Have you not read this? When David did, when he was hungry, when those who were with him, now he went into the house of God, and he took and he ate the showbread, and he also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath that Jesus entered the synagogue and he taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, so the scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he rose and he stood, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But the Pharisees were filled with rage. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we explored Luke chapter 4. What was uh, interesting leading up to this moment is that Jesus claims this Deep and profound prophecy from the book of Isaiah is about him. You'll remember that Jesus was in the temple on the Sabbath and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable years of the year of the Lord. Then all the eyes are on Jesus and he sits down and he hands the scroll back. And after that, in Luke chapter 5, he goes around showing how that is true. And he's healing people. And, he, and, and these are these tremendous signs, the scripture says. In the text that we just read, there's more signs again. As he heals this man with the withered hand. And these, these signs have a purpose, as all signs do. They're pointing to something greater. The sign in and of itself is not the thing. What the sign is pointing to is the thing. It's not divine grandstanding. It reveals ultimately these signs and this moment that we just explored here this, uh, in Luke chapter 6. This healing on the Sabbath. The controversy over the Sabbath. What it's all pointing to is that God has two different views of... I'm sorry, that there's two different views of humanity. There's God's view and there's our view. Our view of humanity is we're doing okay. Sure, there's some problems in the world. Yeah, there's some things that are on fire pretty badly. But also there's these good things over here. We're doing okay. Yeah, if we, maybe we just educate ourselves a little bit more and human, humanity evolves a little more. We're doing okay. But God's view of humanity is a very low anthropology. We're not doing okay. And the signs are pointing to this. Because God's way of speaking about us is that we're captive and oppressed, deaf, blind, lame. Jesus is going around healing the deaf, healing the blind, healing the lame. Proclaiming liberty to the captives because these things are all speaking to God's view about humanity. And at first it's like, ouch, uh, that's hard to hear. But then we look at our news feeds and we realize, well, we're not really creating utopia. Um, And, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, which isn't very long. None of us will be here, of course. But I don't think that 100 years from now, you know, our kids, kids, kids are going to be going, we did it. We've arrived. We've achieved world peace, and everything's fine. We knew we could do it; just took a little bit more education, and we've we've made it. But we're not we're not there. It's not that there's like ah, there's a few bad eggs. No, this is striking language when Jesus is using it to describe humanity and His reason for coming. But we also learn in that striking statement about God's heart and His posture towards us that. His heart towards this wayward humanity is not that he's repulsed, he's deeply in love. He moves towards the wayward humanity to redeem. And so Jesus is proclaiming these signs. And this morning, I just want us to focus on this line that Jesus drops, that's just loaded with historical prophetic significance and day-to-day relevance, and it's the phrase, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're just going to focus on this this morning because all of Jesus' signs, all of his teachings, they're all shining a spotlight on how that claim is true, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to look at these two things, historical significance and day-to-day relevance. We'll start with the historical significance. This is a prophetic promise. It comes from Daniel 7. We'll look at it in a minute. It's... it's This phrase, Son of Man, is throughout the Old Testament over a hundred times, but it comes to a striking uh, climax in Daniel 7, and we'll look at it in a minute. And it's a promise that there's going to be an end to our restlessness, that the Son of Man, this this mysterious divine delivering figure and human figure, is going to bring rest to our restlessness. So in Daniel 7, there's this prophecy that's really poetic and chaotic. And it's imagery of these beasts that are rising. One beast after the next. And one beast is uglier and more, you know, angry than the next. And the beasts are fighting each other. And there are these hybrid sort of monster animals. And uh, the fourth beast is is so mutant, there isn't really any, uh, you know, animals to describe it to. It's got multiple heads. It's a crazy image. But the reason for this, this image as Daniel, uh, Daniel's prophecy on, unfolds is that they're all images of political beasts. These kings and these kingdoms. One that's going to rise up after the next to destroy and flatten the kingdom and replace their way of life over, over the previous way of life. Their rule over the previous rule. And as these kingdoms are usurping one another, this, this figure comes up to bring deliverance. To end the cycle of the restlessness of these political beasts. And so in Daniel 7, verse 13, the vision uh, plays out like this. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so this term, son of man, it's an Aramaic term. It just means human. And so there's this human that's going to come. But it's a divine human. But this divine human has this divine authority to end all the chaos of these worldly kingdoms. And all of the nations are going to worship this son of man, this human. It's a striking prophecy. It doesn't say God's going to... you just, you know, come from, come from the cosmos... and it's going to be like a and God's going to just deal with it. It's a human. And yet divine. So it's mysterious. And of course, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But this Son of Man is significant... because this throne, this kingdom that he's going to have... that's going to last for forever... is what God intended in the beginning. In Genesis, if you go back to the beginning of your Bible... what God intended for humanity would be that we would flourish and cultivate civilization in a way where life in in the city, life in the country, would reflect God's nature and glory and wisdom as humanity lived in worship to him and the beautiful creation would flourish. That's the vision. But then when we rejected God in favor of being God, that throne is vacant. But originally, when God says to humanity, have dominion over the earth. It was in, in essence that we were going to be kings and queens. Ruling and reigning over the earth. And cultivating a glorious civilization. The sort of things that we only dream of. You know beautiful world without all the paradox and horrors of selfishness and destruction. And so that throne was vacant. And so this prophecy is saying actually a human is going to come. That's going to sit on that throne. This one called the son of man. So in Mark's gospel when he's. Jesus is about to be crucified, he actually quotes that prophecy in reference to himself, and that's why they all tear their shirts. The religious leaders are like, you're not that guy, and they lose their minds, and Jesus has been repeatedly saying that I'm him, and they, they can't handle that Jesus is claiming to be the divine one, God and human, who would bring about God's kingdom, and ultimately do that through the sacrifice of his own life, and not shed blood like every other worldly kingdom had done. But when we rejected God in the beginning in Genesis, Genesis 3, that rejection of God, that leads to the first city created in the name of man, Babel, where they build a monument to the human ego. And, And then there's just this repeated cycle of cities founded on the love of ruling, driven by impulse, driven by our own appetites. And so all of these Babylons, Babylon becomes an icon of humanity's desire to glorify itself. And we end up oppressing our, living in oppression and oppressing other people, and the world has been in unrest since the beginning. Precisely because we are living in exiles of our own making. Because if we don't worship God, our life orbits around something else, it's always wayward, it doesn't end well. So there's always another Babylon in the biblical story, Babylon then... The Babel becomes Egypt, and then after Egypt there's another Babylon, and I mentioned it last week, where the book of Amos tells us that that Babylon is shocking because it's actually Israel. The oppressed become the oppressors. That's been the story of human kingdoms. Finally, after uh, Israel is is, uh, oppressing other people, other people groups, God's judgment comes, and then Babylon comes in. 587 BC, Babylon comes in, flattens Jerusalem, flattens the temple, flattens everything. After Babylon, the next beast is Persia. After Persia, the next beast is Greece. And Alexander the Great marches an army all across the ancient world and Hellenizes the ancient world, this massive kingdom where everybody's speaking Koine, basic Greek, right? And then after that, that beast, the next beast is Rome. And that's when Jesus comes into this cycle. It's just this cyclical rise of the beasts. And when God incarnates himself in Jesus Christ, when we focused on this last Sunday, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And when he goes into the wilderness, Mark's gospel mentions with the wild beasts. And the temptation of Jesus is to enter the same cycle use your power for your benefit at others' expense. And enter into the cycle of the misuse of power like all the other beasts. So Jesus overcoming all these temptations breaks the cycle of bringing in kingdoms. By stepping on the necks of others. And of course, Jesus' way of using his power is that he lays it down. Which leads to the next thing that Jesus says about himself. After claiming that he is this deliverer, the son of man. He goes on to say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Of rest. He will end the unrest. He will bring the rest that the human soul craves. On the very first page of the Bible, the earth begins. God creates darkness and chaos, and the scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth, and that the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. So when God creates the earth, he doesn't just create a f- fully functioning planet, the first thing that God creates is the stormy waters and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And how old you think the earth is is not the point of that ancient uh, Hebrew text. If you believe that the the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters and everything was manifested in 24-hour periods, some have that view. If you believe that the Spirit hovered over the face of those waters for 16 billion years, others have that view. Christian faith doesn't crash on how old we think the earth is. It's all hinging on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in the beginning, there is this darkness, this disorder. And the point of that poetry in Genesis, the point of getting us to see how God creates, is that he creates everything from nothing. And that his way of of doing this is uh, depicted in six creation days. These six creation days, however long you happen to believe God's creation day was, again, let's not get hung up on that, the point is that the text says each creation day ends with... and there was morning and there was evening. And then you get to the seventh day... and that phrase is missing. And it's important because when we study the Hebrew language... and we discover there's intentional rhythms... and an intentional cadence and balance. Morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. The seventh day, no morning and evening. It's like a day without end. And the seventh day, the day that doesn't end... What's happening on the day with no end? The rest of God. The celebration of God. The joy of God over his creation. And on the seventh day, God rested. And that rest is, was intended to have no end. Humanity flourishing and cultivating civilization. And worship to our God. This is where it's all going in Revelation, of course. That's how the, that's how the book ends. Spoiler alert if you never got there. But he is this Lord of rest. And so in the Hebrew language, seven is this word of this, 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 this image of, of completion and fullness and this perfect picture the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat was this cease from activity for the purpose of rest and feasting and celebration, because that's what God did. He was celebrating his creation. On each creation day when God says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it is good, it is good. When he's saying that, it's not quality control like the Honda plant. Yep, we have torqued the universe to specifications. It's good, check. No, it's a dance. It's a celebration. He loves his creation. This Lord of rest wants to bring us back into this rest. But of course, after we rejected God, we've been in absolute soul level unrest. That's why uh, the fifth century church father uh, from North Africa, Augustine, puts it this way in his book, Confessions our hearts are restless, O God, and they will remain restless until they find their rest in you. And so after this rejection, again, I'm going back to the beginning, after the rejection of God, what happens to the to the people of God? They are in slavery in Egypt, a life of no rest. God wants to restore rest to humanity, so He chooses Israel to be His kingdom of priests. He gives them rest, so that they would minister rest to all of the nations. This is God's vision. And when does God give them that rest? He gives it to them in the middle of the wilderness. Saves them by grace. The Exodus occurs. They're in the middle middle, middle of the wilderness. A place of anxiety and lack and danger and you're not safe and you don't know if your life is going to be okay. And you're wondering when your next meal is coming from. And he says, why don't you take one day out of seven and just live like everything's provided for you. It's absurd if you live in the wilderness. But God is the Lord of rest, inviting his children into a life of trust and recalibration. Turning towards him, trusting that he will provide Living like that ultimate rest had already come. And of course, what does God do? He provides for them in the middle, middle of the wilderness. What will he do for you and I? He will provide for us in the middle of our wilderness and a soul level wilderness. If we can stop and enter into this rest. It's a glorious command. And the Sabbath, of course, was every seven days. But not only that. Every year there were seven festivals. Seven festivals to celebrate the goodness of God and his saving grace that he is mighty to save and his rest. Eat, drink, celebrate. Well, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know there's something wrong with the human heart when the God of all creation has to be like, guys, why don't you just stop running around? Why don't you rest? And we're like, we can't do it. We have to achieve life and provision and identity for ourselves. You're not God, I'm God. And now I'm going to just relegate myself to this exhausting life Of curating my sense of meaning and identity apart from you. But he's inviting us into this rest. But not only this seven festivals every year, every seven years, a festival of liberation. The debts are gone, the land rests. And every seven times seven years was a year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord. It meant if you lost your land, it went back to original owners. It was like a huge reset of massive, mind-boggling rest. This Lord of Rest. That year of Jubilee, that that seven times seven when everything gets put back, when all of the chaos, there might have been multi-generational poverty because... You know, you had a drought that year. There's no such thing as credit in the ancient world. So your crops are gone. You have to sell yourself into slavery, sell your land into slavery, you know, economic slavery. And now you just, and then every seven times seven years, reset, rest, just this divine grace. That's the phrase that Jesus used in Luke 4 when he read. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim liberty to the captives and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Hey everybody, Jubilee is here because P.S. I'm here. Rolls the scroll up, hands it back to the attendant, sits down. Everybody, All the religious leaders want to tear their shirts off. He's like, I'm him. The son of man, the Lord of rest. I will bring what humanity craves at the deepest, darkest corners of their hearts if you will turn and trust in me The loving creator who's come to bring a kingdom in a way that no other kingdom has ever been come. By laying down power. Laying down my life at the cross. This is this glorious and amazing gospel. And so God's rhythm for this rest is of course the purpose of enjoying life in him. And what did the religious leaders do do with it? They made it the opposite. They misrepresented God in every way. Jesus never had anything good to say about their teaching. Because when people went to the temple they felt worse. They felt burdened. It was the opposite of rest. It'd be like leaving church every Sunday and going, that's terrible. I feel more burdened than when I showed up. What am I doing? I just got crushed and destroyed. That's what people felt going to the religious leaders. And ironically, when they're freaking out about them, eat, when you know, they're eating the grains, on, when they're with Jesus, they're eating grain in the field because he's the Lord of rest and they're with him. And so he hits pause on all of the laws that have to do with rest. Because the, he is the fulfillment of all things. He's not breaking the rules. He's fulfilling them. And so he's, they're, with, they're with Jesus. And so they're eating the grain on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're working. They're not keeping a Sabbath. They're like doing recon missions. You know, Salom, Jedediah, get out there. Stake those guys out. They're like, you know, go for, work, go for wood binoculars. They're hiding in the corner. Like, Yo, stake me out tonight. It's taking out Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're not keeping the law. It's a disaster. They had this whole thing backwards. God's purpose for this law of rest, this day of rest, to give the souls what they so desperately need. And you know you got your theology wrong when the best day of the week ends up being the worst day of the week. It's supposed to be rejuvenation, not burdening. They turned it into sort of like religious inaction. And they made people's lives hard. They had 49 categories for work in their laws. And they were man-made laws. And Jesus called them that. I mean, it's an, another point in the Gospels. But Jesus goes, you guys have just made all of your personal preferences like precepts. And they're not precepts. They're making everybody's lives difficult. This pious inaction. So so Jesus goes, "You don't even understand the purpose of the Sabbath. You, you don't read the scriptures. Did you catch that? That massive shot about the, shot across the bow. They have to memorize copious amounts of scriptures to become Pharisees. He's like, yo, you guys never read the part where David eats the showbread. You don't understand that he ate that because like the will of God wouldn't be that like he starves and dies while there's bread in the room. You don't understand that the Sabbath rest of God is for nourishing." this is a picture of this, that David has a revelation of that, that God's a God of rejuvenation and of nourishment and care and love. You don't understand this? He's taking them to school. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, and He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't obliterate the institution. He's there in the synagogue teaching this stuff, doing these things. He's not obliterating the institution. He's reshaping it around Him, right, at the moment, right, when the... Uh, We've got deconstructionism trending. Everybody's waxing eloquent on how maybe we can just worship Jesus and we don't need this crazy, ridiculous institution called the church. We don't need that, do we? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. He's the Lord of rest. It's not our institution. It's His institution. We gather as the people of God because we've been doing that from the jump. This has always been God's vision. He's the Lord of rest. We gather to worship Him. If the church goes sideways, the preacher goes sideways, the teaching goes sideways, absolutely deconstruct. So that you can reconstruct and resemble the goodness and the glory uh, of Jesus, faithful teaching of his word. So we can flourish according to his ways as we live into imitation of Christ, of course. But all of these uh, things that Christ has instituted to rest, to gather, to worship him, his table... The bread, the cup, these are things that Christ has instituted to minister to the soul. So that's the significance, deep and rich significance of that phrase, the Son of Man is the Lord of Rest. And really I've just skipped a stone because entire libraries have been written on the subject. But I hope I've given you a couple things to think about this morning. That when he makes that phrase, he is, he is encapsulating and culminating centuries of the movement of God throughout history. To shine a spotlight on what he is about to do in his gracious life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection. Let's move on to the final thing this morning, which is the day to day relevance of all of this. And it's that as we practice these rhythms of rest, we're rejuvenated to live into our imitation of Christ. Lives that are formed by his rest, fueled by his rest. We live in this anticipation of the ultimate day of rest. So we can work very hard at our vocations. And put all of our energy and our creative faculties into going to our workplaces and doing really good work from a position of rest. Because we don't need our work to define us and tell us who we are, and give us a sense of meaning. We, that is already established, And so now we do this as a means of helping the city flourish. Loving our neighbors, caring for those in need. We can be very active from a position of this wonderful rest. We're living out the life, ultimately, that's envisioned by God in Genesis. You know, we're all familiar with the phrase, you only live once. Not us. We live twice. We only die once. That should change how we approach things quite a bit. Make us people of generosity and love and care and patience. Because we know that on the seventh day of creation... There's that day with no end that's coming. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to bring. And so this is why we gather and we worship and we meditate. We do these things as a means of returning to soul rest. We know we're on a trajectory of of inevitable restoration. And so this is good news in a world where there is a uh, non-stop stream of sorrows. Which leads to the final thing as I close... He heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. What is the significance of healing a withered hand against a backdrop of him being the son of man and the Lord of rest and the whole purpose of rejuvenation of the Sabbath? It is that signs point and healing and replenishing what is dry and withered is what the Sabbath rest is for. The dry and withered souls. As we go through life dehydrated, apart from our Creator, that we come into love, uh, uh, worship and love and rest, and we are rehydrated like that dry and withered hand. After six days, every week, we're confronted constantly with the sadness, the sorrow, the brokenness, the tiredness of this beautiful world of ours. Our beautiful world is dry and withered. Many times we can feel dry and withered. We come... On Sundays we gather with our brothers and our sisters. We worship. We eat lunch. We go for walks. We enjoy nature. We rest. We don't put in our hour. Okay, ten thirty. I got an appointment to meet with God. Okay, eleven thirty. Let's get back to making money. stacks on stacks. What are we doing? Rest. Take twenty-four hours and act like God has you, because He does. You don't understand. If I don't do this, my whole life and career could fall. I bet you I won't. I bet you God's that good. Rest. We do this. We enjoy this day with family and friends. Some of you might have caught on. that there's some certain things I've said every single Sunday for nine years. One of them is we close the service. We give the benediction. And I say, enjoy this day of rest with your family and friends. Enjoy it. Don't be like, okay, back to work. We punched the clock. God is happy. That's not, he, didn't, he didn't give us the day of rest so that we could give a checkbox. He goes, okay, good, I'm pleased with you now. He went to church today. Your soul needs to be replenished. It's much bigger than this. To truly rest in Him and in His goodness. We do all of these things, gathering and worshiping and resting and fellowshipping so that we can live into the reality of our new humanity. Live like death is not final. Celebrate this. At creation, God ceased from his rest because it was finished. At the cross and the new creation, Jesus ceased from his work. Declared it was finished. Intentionally timed his death so that his body was laying in the grave at rest on the Sabbath. So that on Sunday morning, the first day of the week is a dawn of a new creation. So that we, the people of God, would enter into that finished rest. So, church, go from this place with humble confidence. The one who holds the world together with the word of his power is holding you. You are in good hands. You are well provided for. So breathe, church. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray.